Well, good day, everybody. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 10. Again, this is going to be close to the midway point in your Bibles, looking at Psalm 10. Perhaps it's a little before the midpoint of your Bible since it's so early, but speaking of the Bible, did you know that it's the best-selling book of all time? Specifically, numbers-wide, I mean, numbers range for you. Uh, Most people estimate approximately somewhere between 5 and 7 billion copies have been sold all time. So think about it. It's remarkable. That's close to one Bible for every single human being that exists in the world at this point in time. Now, there's another top-selling book out there. Many say it's number two of all time. Others definitely have at least in the top ten, and that is Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is a Christian allegory that was written in the year 1678 by John Bunyan. Now, John Bunyan was a Puritan, but more importantly, a Baptist preacher from England with essentially no uh, uh, formal higher education. He actually began his work while being imprisoned for refusing to conform to the Church of England's heretical teaching at the time. And that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress as a dream or a symbolic vision of a man progressing through the highs and the lows of life in his trek from this life to the next, from this world to heaven. And as the main character, who's named Christian, does so, as he's in this trek, he encounters all sorts of symbolic characters along the way. And so for the sake of today's text, let's focus specifically on three of them. Okay, remember, this is Christian allegory. So the first character is Christian, the second character is obstinate, and the third character is pliable. As I noted, Christian is the protagonist who learns that his home city is soon to be destroyed. So at the prodding of the evangelist, he begins his journey to the celestial city. And upon leaving his hometown set for destruction, Christian encounters his neighbor, who is named Obstinate. And when Obstinate learns of Christian's plans, he scoffs at him. Ask, why would you ever leave your friends and your family and your comfort for something so delusional? And so he criticizes him and he mocks him. And this is all happening alongside another neighbor. So picture it. You have Christian here, you have Obstinate here, and you have this third character who's just kind of watching at a distance and gets involved a little bit. And his name is Pliable. You see, Pliable is caught in the middle, and he can't make up his mind about what to do and who to follow. Eventually, he forgoes Obstinate's advice and proceeds to go with Christian on his journey. And as they set out, Pliable begins to ask Christian for more details about the city they're headed to, where Christian proceeds to tell him all about the joy and the glory and the peace and the great governor of this country. And as a result, Pliable becomes very filled with excitement and anticipation as they venture on. But suddenly, early out on their journey, these two become unexpectedly entangled in danger in something called the Slough of Despond. And it's at this point, in this swamp, Pliable nervously utters the words that are key for our time together this afternoon. So listen as I read. It says, Then, said Pliable, Christian, where are you? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At this, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, 
Is this the happiness you have told me of all this time? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life and you possess this brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the swamp, which was his own house. And so he went away and Christian saw him no more. So what are the differences between these three characters, Christian, obstinate, and pliable? And what do they mean for us? What separates them? What causes one to pursue the heavenly city, another to reject it, and another to give up on it? At the end of the day, it's as Pastor James said last week, it all boils down to the difference between belief and unbelief. Quoting the renowned preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, Pastor James read that the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is, in fact, unbelief. We don't believe God actually knows or cares, or whether he'll actually do anything about the afflictions we experience. So church, today as we look at Psalm 10, as we consider it, do think about obstinate, Christian, and pliable, and as we take a close look at two marks of an unbeliever and two marks of a believer, please pay close attention. So number one, point number one, two marks of an unbeliever, that's verses one through 12. And point number two, two marks of a believer, and that's verses 13 through 18. You'll notice each section begins with a question. So let me go ahead and read here, verse one. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times, Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commit himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. 
O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So number one, what are the two marks of an unbeliever? Mark number one, he trusts in himself. And mark number two, he trusts in his circumstances. So the unbeliever trusts in himself, and he trusts in or relies on his circumstances. Now remember from last week, this psalm serves as like a part two to Psalm 9. The Wycliffe Bible commentary says that while this psalm has a literary affinity to the previous psalm, the mood here is entirely different. So where Psalm 9 is a song of praise, Psalm 10 is a song of lament. And so what does verse 1 tell us about how we are to conduct ourselves even in the midst of hardship, church? It teaches us that we are to take it to the Lord. In verse 1, David cries, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, praying this. Now, it's important to note that countless scholars who are actually, are, are actually at odds with respect to what's exactly going on in David's life at this point in time, so we don't have a super clear answer, uh, but regardless, it's a psalm penned in the midst of of trouble. In verses 2, 3, and 4, we see evidence of the unbeliever trusting both in himself and in his circumstances. And as far as his own character, we see in verse 2, he's called arrogant and wicked, and he devises his schemes and strategies to mistreat others and take advantage of them. And then in verse 3, we see he's prideful in his persistent appetite for more and more and more. That's what the desires of his soul are in verse 3. His desire is gain. It says he's greedy for gain. On this, there's many of us here today who are, in fact, greedy for gain. And I'm not just talking to unbelievers, friends. I'm talking to Christians as well. Many of us are constantly finding ways to distract ourselves away from what's most important, all for the sake of greed or gain, for the sake of just the next thing, whether it be a different work circumstance, new home improvement projects, a change in relationship status or a new life stage, and on and on and on it goes. And while none of these things are bad in and of themselves, you know what the problem with always chasing your own appetite is? You'll always be hungry. Whatever you're chasing after, you'll always want more. You'll always want the next thing. You don't believe me? How often are you finding yourself discontent? How often is it that what the Lord has given you is not good enough? You're being distracted. You're being distracted from what's most important, which is your eternal state and the eternal state of those around you. You're being distracted from the joy of constant fellowship with the one true God, the all-knowing, ever-present, ever-glorious God. It's like you're scrolling through Instagram as you sit on the cliff of the Grand Canyon. Enough with the distraction. Stop renouncing or avoiding the Lord and acknowledge and embrace Him for who He is. Stop trusting yourself. And then for the non-Christian 
here today, I have to ask, what reason or reasons do you actually have to be so confident in yourself? I mean that with all due respect. What have you actually done that's of lasting value? My wife and I, we like board games. One of the most recent ones called uh, Mind the Gap is the title, which is essentially, it's a trivia game that breaks out questions based on different generations. So boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. It's fun to, to play with a bunch of family members. And what always happens when we play with others, except for her dad, is that nobody ever knows hardly any of the questions from the boomer generation, especially when it comes to pop culture and achievements. And not only do we not know the answer, we've never even heard of these people from only 60 or so years ago who devoted their lives to their professions in these types of accolades. Which seven-time Emmy Award winner did this? Which famous news anchor was known for this? Which popular TV show won this award this many times in a row? And you know what? Nobody remembers. To pull from the teacher of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all of life is vanity. So what is it that you're devoting your life to apart from God that you think is going to stand the test of time? That's going to be worth it. Friends, I wonder what it would take to get us to stop trusting in ourselves, to truly humble us. There's something for all of us here. You know, it could be, could be a diagnosis, a breakdown of a relationship, a loss of a loved one. We always want that next thing. And when we get it, we're happy for a very short amount of time. And what's next? We just move on to the next thing. And on and on it goes. The history of humankind has proved this true. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Verse 3 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. I remember I grew up, uh, when, I, when growing up, I had this cross necklace I used to always wear. I was very proud of it. And in high school, after baseball practice one day, I was walking to my car alongside one of my teammates named Cam, who I had known for years. And you know what he said to me that absolutely cut me to the core? He said, Jeremy hey, why do you wear that cross necklace around your neck all the time? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I mean, it's not like you're religious or anything. I said, Cam, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian. Cam casually then and nonchalantly says, wait, seriously? I had no idea. If I had to guess, I would have thought you were an atheist. And then he drove off. That destroyed me. But it also changed me. Church, what does your life look like? Do you seek God? Is it evident to all that He is what you're living for? Are you living a life in such a way at work or at home that's consistent with the gospel? Or are you potentially living as a functional atheist? Friends, repent. There's grace for that. 
This doesn't mean that your salvation isn't real, though it may, but it does mean that today is a great day to recalibrate your life and reorient it to God. We read in verses 5 and 6, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So in other words, the unbeliever is so confident in himself and his circumstances as he experiences significant material success. He thinks, oh, everything seems to be going good. I'm on a great path. And he does that to the point that he disregards God and everybody else. It's all about this world. It's all about comfort. And it's all about him. Nothing can touch him, he thinks. And so what does this result in? Well, look at verse 7, 8, and 9. He's filled with cursing and deceit and oppression and mischief and iniquity. He takes advantage of others and he intimidates them. He abuses them. And as a result for him, he controls them. And as a result for them, verse 10, they're crushed. They sink down. They fall by his might. And they give up. You know, there's this new podcast out there. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's one of the most fascinating, most tragic case studies on modern Christianity out there, primarily with respect to the modern megachurch movement. If you you haven't listened to it, I do highly recommend it, though I do have a couple of thoughts I think are important, so if you choose to listen, please do uh, feel free to speak to me or shoot me an email to, to get those. Uh, but for those, who of you, for those of you who are unfamiliar, what it does is it traces the path of a church called Mars Hill Church in Seattle from its initial inception to its eventual demise just a few years ago. And what started with a handful of people quickly morphed into a church of near 15,000 in one of the toughest cities in America. And just about 10 years, a little bit more. And then it all came crashing down practically overnight. You see, Mars Hill Church was centered on one man. One very gifted, yet very destructive man. Though a gravitating figure and a renowned preacher... He rose to prominence by creating and cultivating a church culture based on fear, verbal abuse, and a domineering attitude. So he bragged about firing elders, about figuratively running over anyone who would disagree with him with a bus, and about wanting to beat up his own church members. And yet people kept coming. Anyways, the the theme song for the podcast was written by actually the former worship team at his church, and the lyrics read like this. Did I pledge my allegiance for the purpose of progress to a priest or a prophet playing God in the process? Was I chasing convenience in a wave of disaster where the captain's a captor and I'm a puppet to pastor? Friends, without making any kind of definitive statements or judgments about this guy, you know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like Psalm chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. A man who is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, even from his own pulpit, who scoffs at those who disagree with him, 
who takes advantage of those he perceives to be weaker than him, who draws people in only to crush them for his own personal gain and power, who is so arrogant as to trust in himself and his circumstances that he dodges accountability and functions as though his sins are unseen. Church, there's a word for that. Obstinate. One who stubbornly refuses to change his mind words or actions despite danger, sound logic, and a sincere love for him. We can stand alongside David at that point and ask, why, Lord? How could this happen? In an article written by an Australian theologian, he takes the time to analyze this case study and list out a few lessons churches should learn from the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And some of those findings include the importance of character over ability, Confusing narcissism and bullying with leadership and determination. The importance of honesty and loyalty, uh, honesty over loyalty, truth over tribe, all culminating in his final conclusion that when success becomes an idol, bullying becomes its sacrament. It's mind-blowing and it's stomach-churning. But friends, may we check ourselves from gazing upon the sins of one man as though his sins were somehow not a mirror of our own. And so while we may not have sinned in the exact same way, I do wonder, are you today trusting in yourself? How highly do you think of yourself? Are you prone to arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency, or an insistence on your own way all the time? Church, those aren't marks of true Christians. Or do you think so lowly of yourself that in fact all you do is think of yourself and how you appear and what so-and-so thinks of you and how you feel you failed? Friends, the pride and arrogance in this text looks different for everybody. And so another question is, who are you presently taking advantage of right now? And that doesn't just have to be in a power dynamic. Who are you presently taking advantage of relationally, emotionally, financially, physically? Husbands, are you harsh with your wives? Repent. Wives, are you constantly overcritical of your husbands? Repent. Turn from your sinful ways. Look to Christ and extend patience and forgiveness to your spouse. Now let me just say as a reminder, we all struggle with these things. We're all sinners. So if some of these sound like you, again, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but it's just that. You struggle with these things. You're aware of them, and you are constantly throwing yourself upon Christ for deliverance from them. For believers, this is why it's so important to be actively involved in the lives of other church members. As James shared last week, isolation is a death sentence for your soul. But specific to this text, could you by chance be trusting so much in your present circumstances that you're thinking like the man in verse 4, that there is no God. Or in verse 5, that your sins are out of his sight. Or in verse 11, that God has forgotten and that he's hidden his face and that he'll never see them. If this is the case, I pity you today. To the believer, 
What sins, what little sins are you hiding that you think are culturally acceptable or that you'll receive a free pass on in the end? To the unbeliever, do you know that God sees everything and that he will bring everything into account and into judgment? In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we read that God is symbolically documenting every single thought, word, and deed we've ever committed. And that we will be held responsible for them. That's what justice looks like. That's what goodness looks like. Holding evil accountable. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, go ahead and turn with me there if you like. You don't need to, I'll read it. But Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 reads... Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now get this, pay close attention. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And church, do you know what Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 is a direct answer to? It's verse 12 of this psalm. When God's people cry out, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. They are able to look to promises such as this, that God will recount, that he will act, that he will judge justly. We've talked a a lot about books so far today, whether it be the Bible or Pilgrim's Progress or the Psalms or the books even here in this passage, the ones documenting our entire lives and also the book of life. So the question then is, how does one go from having an entire library of thoughts, words, and deeds? Think of the biggest library you've ever been to. An entire library of unworthiness to yet still being found written in the book of life. How does that make sense? I mean, think about it. Picture a library full of books, everything you've ever thought and done, and even one line in one of those books would immediately disqualify you from being found in the book of life. You know what you've done, and for a lot of things that you've done that are evil, you won't even admit to them. We won't even admit to them. And the book of life is reserved only for those who meet God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness. So then how could it ever be possible to have those books totally and utterly whitewashed, bleached, so that it would make perfect sense for you to be found in the book of eternal life? Well, there is a way today, church. You see, the only way for the countless offenses against a holy God to ever be blotted out is actually only if they're soaked 
in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus had to die as the one who would live a perfect life in obedience to God, who died as the sacrificial lamb, as a substitute in our place. Don't tune out on me here. That we might be covered in his righteousness rather than our own. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Another book illustration for you. One pastor puts it like this. Imagine there were a book that contained every sin you've ever committed. When we die, each of us are in possession of that book as we come face to face with God to claim our innocence. The problem is, not one of us is going to be found anywhere close to worthy. But for all those who turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, as you think about it, as you approach God, you look down at that book and you notice the name on that book is not yours. Instead, it says Jesus Christ. And as you open it, it's empty. And God then asks you, son, daughter, does this belong to you? Well, for those who are found trusting in Christ, the answer is a joyful, truthful, and unwavering yes. My prayer is that everybody here today on that day would be able to share in that yes. So then what are we supposed to do with this? If the marks of an unbeliever are that he trusts in himself and in his circumstances, and who tastes success yet is prideful and arrogant and greedy and obstinate, what then is the contrast? And that brings up point number two. So number one, two marks of an unbeliever, and number two, two marks of a believer. This one's much shorter. And so if the two marks of an unbeliever are that he trusts in himself and relies on his circumstances, then the two marks of a believer are that he trusts in God and that he trusts in God's promises. We read in verse 13 another question. It says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So verse 13 is here to say, why? Again. Church, the question David is asking here is the exact same question we are asking and we should be asking, coming out of everything we just read in verses 1 through 12. And as I previously noted, David lived a life of extreme turbulence especially in his younger days, often betrayed, always on the run for his life, and left wondering, what is going on? Why does it look like the bad guys always win and the good guys always lose? What gives, essentially? But friends, seeing is not believing, and God is sovereignly working in your life to see you finally delivered into his heavenly kingdom. Pastor and theologian John Piper puts it best. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. This was the case for David en route to the throne, and this is the case for you and I en route to glory. A Puritan theologian, Matthew Henry, puts it this way. Outward deliverance, so what we see, is afar off and is sometimes hidden from us. And then we think God is afar off. And we, therefore, want inward comfort. But that's our own fault. 
It's because we judge by outward appearance. We stand afar off from God by our unbelief, and then we complain that God stands afar off from us. And so, particularly, again, to the unbeliever here today, why? How long will you go on living like this? Better yet, how long will you go on living, period? The Bible tells us our time is so short and tomorrow is not promised. And so when the time comes for you to close your eyes for the last time, whether that's in 60 years or that's tomorrow, where will you awake? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? See, this is the fundamental difference between the believer and the unbeliever. It's what differentiates or separates these from one another. See, it's not primarily about what we do. The line in the sand between a believer and an unbeliever is not what we do or what you do. It's about what you believe. It's about who you believe. And though what we do naturally flows from what we believe, I would make the case that not only is unbelief the ultimate cause of spiritual depression, but that all sin is in fact the very offspring of unbelief, or the very natural result of unbelief. You see, going back to our introduction, you see, Pliable didn't continue, didn't discontinue the journey because of something Christian did, or because he simply found something better he'd rather do. No, he gave up because he stopped believing. And so, church, may we be found to continue to believe in God and his promises. I think of 1 Timothy, I mean 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Here the apostle Paul writes from prison as he awaits execution. So these are his last days. And as I read this, I just want you to keep pliable in the back of your, your mind. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Now get this. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul here, you guys, sounds an awful lot like a true believer. As one who, in the face of hardship, is found trusting in God's character and in his promises. I've heard it said before that essentially the entire story of the Bible is a story about God simply desiring these two things, that we would trust him and that we would trust his promises. And here at the end of Paul's life, he proves faithful as one helpless in need of a helper. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 10. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So here we're told that God sees all and is the helper to the helpless in a time of need. And so for the unbeliever here, my prayer for you is that when that time of need presents itself, 
that you would remember that the compassionate God of the universe who formed you and who loves you is right there desiring to help you. And friends, that time of need is right now. The Bible says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That we're living in the final days. That your life is like grass that withers and fades. That we are here like a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. So don't spend another minute living in that city of destruction. Because he'll either help you as you admit your weakness and need of him, as we see in verse 14, or he'll break you, like you see in verse 15. He's near and friend and helper to the one who says, I'm helpless, I'm sinful, I need you, God. And he'll break the one who says, there is no God. Verse 4, I shall not be moved. Verse 6. God has forgotten. He will never see it. Verse 11. And for the believer here, the first four verses, uh, first four words of verse 14 are a tremendous comfort. But you do see. So Christian, do you find yourself in the midst of a hard battle right now? Perhaps it's a hard season or a crushing situation at work. Or maybe it's just something else that's going on that's just outside of your control and you're discouraged. And you're honestly just running out of gas. God sees. He hears. He knows. And he is absolutely committed to you. Cry out to him. Picture it. Your voice in his ear brings a smile to his face. And our songs of praise today together as a church Bring, not only bring us great joy as we worship him for who he is, but bring him great joy for who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. He sees, he hears, he saves. And he will call wickedness to account. Verse 15. Church, the wicked will not stand. God's opponents will not stand. Evil governments will not stand. Though it may not seem like it, though we may not currently see it, though they may enjoy their season temporarily, their end will be swift and it will be sure. For as verse 16 says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from this land. You know, as we contrast those who trust in themselves and rely on their circumstances with those who instead trust in God and trust in His promises? You know who comes to mind? Obviously, obstinate and Christian, with one scoffing at the impending judgment and the other one setting out and committing himself to the journey to the heavenly city. And don't forget Pliable, the one who gave up on his faith in the face of tension, peer pressure, and hardship. But greater, it's Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, as Scripture puts it, in his death on the cross and his resurrection to the life above. As he prayed in that garden, he entrusted himself to the will of the Father. As he was betrayed, he continued on toward the cross. As he hung there, afflicted, he cried out in faith. And as he resurrected, 
and now reigns in glory as the one who eternally helps and as the one returning soon to bring all things into judgment. To the naked eye he looked down, dead, and defeated. But to the tune of reality he was killing death. He was being enthroned forever. And he was opening that glorious and eternal door for all of us to enter in. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are and for the eternal hope we have in you. God, what a blessed thought that you are sovereignly in control of everything. That you help the weak and lowly of heart. And that no evil goes unseen or will go unjudged. Most of all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to rescue and to save and to grant eternal life to all of your saints. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.